Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Our guest today has accomplished something that only about 500 people in history have accomplished. He's climbed the seven summits, the highest mountains on each of the seven continents. And he's about to do something that only about 70 people in history have done. Complete what is known as the Explorer's Grand Slam by climbing all seven summits and by reaching both the South Pole and the North Pole. He grew up on a farm outside of Seattle, Washington, and became an outdoor adventurer of sorts at a young age. As he grew up, his career path took him in many directions, including law and politics. Our guest, you see, has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and Political Science, as well as a Juris Doctor degree from the Seattle University School of Law. He even joins your very own host in having a Master of Laws degree in taxation from the University of Washington School of Law. Our guest ran for the United States Congress, and though he didn't win, he did quite well at the polls. But after facing several unexpected hardships, he realized that his dreams conflicted with the norms of what society expected of him, and his path eventually led him to the mountains. Our guest not only has climbed the seven summits, but also six of the seven volcanic summits, the highest volcanoes on each continent. He became the fastest and first American man and third person ever to complete the Antarctica trifecta with his climbing partner, Roxanne Vogel, by consecutively skiing the last degree to the South Pole and reaching the summits of Mount Vincent, which is the highest mountain there, and Mount Sidley, the highest volcano in Antarctica. And his list of climbing exploration accomplishments is, in fact, so long that it might take the entire show just to go through them. Yet, it seems like he's just getting started. In addition to pursuing the Explorer's Grand Slam, he's now pursuing multiple world records. 
He's attempting to climb the second seven summits, which are the second highest mountains on each continent, and much more. But his expeditions have become focused on something that matters even more than summits, making a meaningful impact on the world. He is committed to sustainability, conservationism, and combating climate change, raising awareness and funds for Human Rights Watch's work on the environment and human rights. He also advocates for greater inclusivity and diversity in uh, the outdoors and for breaking down social and economic barriers to provide greater access to our natural spaces. Please welcome the extraordinary Andrew Hughes. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you. You've had uh, quite the career so far, and you're still a pretty young guy. Uh, I appreciate the young guy sentiment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> some days feel older than others, for sure. So. Well, we all want to, to know more about the extraordinary part of you. After all, this show is called Seeking the Extraordinary. But let's actually start with the foundation. And why don't you start by telling us what I didn't cover in my introduction? That is to say, tell us about your background, your family, or whatever it is that just makes you the person that you are. Yeah, I, I think uh, growing up on a farm it was actually a farm run as a bed and breakfast. And so from an early age, it wasn't just living on a farm. It was working within a small business with my family. My, my father left early on. And so it was just my mother and sister and me for a long time. and having uh, incredibly uh, strong women in my life has always kind of framed a lot of, I think, what later became this idea of searching for greater equality and inclusivity uh, in a space that I saw highly dominated by males in the outdoors. And but even going further back, my, my family kind of started off as janitors way, way back in like the early 1900s in San Francisco. And I remember this, this story that my, my grandfather told me about this place in time where my great-grandfather had almost nothing left financially left to his name. His business had shut down and he was just walking the streets of San Francisco looking for jobs and opportunity with barely any money left. He had kids at home, kid on the way. And he always kind of referred to this idea of tribulation, this idea of kind of the, the chaffing of the wheat where you kind of go through trials to find the kernels that are, are valuable. And I always found that like pearls are valuable yourself through tribulations and through trials. And that always stuck with me. And so from a young age, it was always trying to find ways to push myself and find ways to challenge myself, knowing that that would really refine and define myself as well. So I grew up in that kind of that, that small business, which did everything from housekeeping to painting fences to serving afternoon tea for a guest. And it was a beautiful way to grow up in a small town kind of outside, um, at the same time, my family I was very international. My father was British, so we had family in Australia. Uh, his father had fought in the Royal Air Force, and so he was a much stronger, tough military man. And we were in a small town. I, from a young age, I went to Australia for the first time when I was six months old. Forgot my mom was for a hot minute when, when I got back. Um, but at the same time, I was it's heartbreaking for her. But this, that kind of, that seeding of experience and opportunity, even from a young age, I think also kind of frayed the, the path that I would eventually refine myself back on. Great. And well, let's continue to pursue that path. And uh, we're, we're going to get to the mountains, certainly. But I, I read a quote from you, and it says that you, quote, came to realize the path toward what society deemed as success was, in fact, distancing you from your dreams. 
So tell us about more, tell, tell us a little bit more about where you were going and why that wasn't where you ultimately decided to go. Yeah, yeah, that, that concept for me kind of led to this, this very kind of, I think, simple phrase of seeking beyond summits. And for me, summits are way beyond just the mountain themselves. They are any milestone or moment in our lives that we put on potentially an unrealistic amount of expectation or value for that singular moment. And that can be everything from getting into college or starting a relationship, getting married, getting your first job. In the mountains, 85% of injuries happen on the descent. And if you flatten out those summits and, and think of them as simply another part of a longer journey, then you realize that just getting to those valuable moments is not what it's about. And if you only save all your energy and put all your value into that singular moment of getting into college, but then don't show up to class or getting into a marriage and then aren't ready to do the work of being in a relationship or landing that first job and not being willing to kind of like have humility and reach out for mentorship and other opportunities and continue to work hard, then you're generally going to probably fall victim to what happened to me, which was I got into a relationship that because I thought I had to be in a relationship, got married too early, potentially in my life, was seeking career paths that were highly, highly intellectually engaging, an incredible toolkit to go on and definitely nothing that ever wasted, but definitely something that wasn't feeding the authentic self in, in me. And so when all those things kind of fell apart, like a country song and like, the wife left, the ex-wife left, and the dog died, and the, the job I I didn't get elected. It was an extremely challenging time because at my early 30s, I felt I was starting over where everything around me, I saw people kind of on a more traditional societal path of being in relationships, starting families, and kind of more traditional careers. And I felt more lost and more alone than ever. Um, but in that loneliness, there was oh so opportunity. And there was a chance for me to kind of reconnect and start refining a part of myself that somewhere along the way I had started to to give away in order to kind of get ahead a little bit more and, and get into something that people externally I could explain. Cocktail parties were anxiety-filled opportunities for me because I'd show up and trying to explain what I was doing at that point in my life when everything was falling apart was so, so hard because I felt it was so much easier for people who could simply lay off the resume basically right off the gate and then move on to the next thing. But in those moments of have discomfort, there was also a redefining it and a rediscovery of me, which further led me to kind of where I am now. So the challenges that I mentioned earlier that come right out of your biography, the challenges you're speaking about are, are, are the breakdown of your marriage and your political loss, frustration, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, I, I think like and what happens okay. a lot uh, for me, and I think a lot of people is that we fill our lives with so much that we never have to sit with ourselves and sit with the things. And that moment and space that was given to me also forced me to go back to an abusive and absent father and to things that were in my childhood of not really having a male figure or somebody to raise her. I I had an incredibly strong mother and an incredibly loving sister, but there was always this huge hole, I feel like growing up, where you just feel the demons within you that haven't been dealt with. And we can go on a long time in life because life is so busy. And if you allow it to continue to be busy, it can keep you from being there. You can hop from relationship to relationship, job to job, opportunity to opportunity, and never give yourself the space to really extract the full value of what you've gone through. And all of those things kind of like coming apart 
created that space, which then I could live in. And the mountains in particular created this opportunity to really go deeper into that. Um, but it, it was, it, it was a gift um, given from what was taken. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much personal information. Yeah. You seem very comfortable doing that. And yeah. I really yeah. admire and respect that. One of the quotes that you that 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 I, I really appreciated was where you say that you quote relearn to turn discomfort and challenge into growth and gratitude. Oh. Yeah, I can really relate to that. Yeah, and and seeking beyond summits is that trademarked or can I steal that? You can steal. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 I've been using it for a while because it kind of just for me it became this idea and the concept of everything that I want to do and go back to that, kind of go back to it's. It's, it's a long-term vision of life and how you approach it. I love it. And I, I love when you talk about, about you know, the importance of the descent as well. And it just really, I, I can really relate to that. I love that. So we're going to get to, to your, your career of adventure in a minute, but I uh, just want to ask you one more question, yeah. which is, do you ever sit around thinking about what would have happened had you won that election? Yeah, no, I think it's one of the greatest losses I've ever had. I honestly think. Some of the, the greatest climbs I ever have are, are the ones that I didn't make the summit. It's from the greatest opportunities that I had are the ones that didn't turn out. We think of all these like places where we failed supposedly, but in fact, we like there's always finding and failure. And for me, if I had continued to go down that path, there was this sense of going in it with the right intention, but losing the intention along the way. And I was young, like 29, 30, I think when I ran. And the problem was that I didn't have my authentic voice at that point in time. I, the authenticity of who I was, I, it, it wasn't there. I had lost it. And so I was speaking to the things I cared about, but I, you, there was definitely a disconnect between like who I was and like what I was truly passionate about and how I wanted to be an advocate for the things I cared about in politics. And, Politics, I think so many people go into it um, or they used to go into it for the right intentions. And so often they have to sacrifice so much simply to be a part of that system. And I just started seeing opportunities externally where you could influence and impact. And I realized also that all politics at the end of the day are, are local. And so if, it, if, if you can impact locally, you have as great of an impact as anybody kind of on, on a more national or global scale. So let's get into your career of adventure. And uh, let's just start with your your first, what was your first great adventure? Your CV, which I took a look at, says that you started climbing in 2014. Yeah, yeah. So growing up in the Northwest, Mount Rainier, any of us been to the Seattle area, it, if you're lucky and, and generally I feel like most people get sunny days when they come out here, they, they get a view of Mount Rainier, which is so special when you think yeah. about mountains in the proximity to a major metropolitan area. And it just sits there and it's really a part of, I think, any Northwestern identity. And there's definitely, I think, everyone in different parts of the country and world who have proximity to something of that kind of natural beauty or drawn to it, whether it's, you know, if you live by the water or something else, you just kind of, if you grow up with it, you're drawn to it. And I definitely spent time leading up to 2014 doing other things that were, I think, more, more dangerous, like skydiving and bungee jumping and, and doing things that were kind of, I would say shorter duration, but a heightened sense of kind of discomfort and facing fears. I mean, I grew up afraid of heights. So that was always my challenge is to like push that fear and to challenge that fear to face it um, as much as possible. Hopefully move our, myself into a more neutral territory to ex coexist with it. But I always wanted to climb and no one would, but luckily we have a lot of great 
private companies based in the Northwest. So I just signed up one. No one, none of my friends wanted to go with me. And it, it was the entire process of preparing for that climb, the months of like kind of like training and learning about the gear. The climb itself was, was wonderful. It was just a few days on Mount Rainier, but I was hooked afterwards. There was just something about it that created this beginning of like a fire inside of me, this moving meditation I found when I was climbing. Um, and I just know I needed to learn more about that. And so from that point on, it kind of became the seed that took root. Unfortunately, I also ended up, that's when I got back later that summer, when the, the wife moved out of the house and was going to divorce. So the mountains got essentially shelved for about a year and a half. But once that was all settled, there was nothing really left for me to kind of hold me down here. And so I just left and went to climbing as much as I could and explore as much as I could. Hmm. So you actually had a fear of heights and, yeah. and then you attacked it. It's, 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 a, it's a bit of a Bruce Wayne story. Uh, yeah, where, where Bruce was so afraid of bats and he embraced the fear, embraced the bat in him and be, he became Batman. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember we did a leadership camp when I was 17 years old and it had one of those kind of ropes courses in the woods out here in the Northwest. That was just a simple pole you climb up to. And I literally remember sh- like shaking my whole body, vibrating out of fear and getting yeah. up there, hating every bit of it. And I, I probably was crying, <laughs> but it, it was one of those things where it's natural to face or have fears. And I think it's just finding out how to kind of coexist with them. Oftentimes, especially if there's something that you're passionate about that they're going to be a part of, which is in my path, they, they're always there in some capacity. So. So fast forward five years from when you cl- climbed Mount Rainier and I have seen uh-huh. Mount Rainier you know, only in the distance when I'm yeah, in Seattle. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's quite a spectacle. It's, it's a sort of, it's that shadow, you know, figure in, the, in yeah. the back and it's just so huge. But five years later, you became effectively a professional. You started to become sponsored. So how did you make that transition to becoming effectively a professional? Yeah, I mean, I think the the way a lot of people and it happens for me as well is that you begin with getting sponsorship has all kinds of all kinds of forms. And it started off through a mitigation of the money we spent on gear by people providing us gear. Then there was small amounts of money coming in for content and for association. We'd take photos out in the field with stuff. And that it was actually, I mean, COVID for taking so much away, I think also gave us a lot of time and energy beside it. 2019, I had just started getting kind of product kind of and brand associations going into Antarctica. Coming out of that, Everest was about two months away and I was really kind of pushing for things, but then everything stopped for the whole world. And in that gap, it also kind of created a shift in, in kind of what I wanted the mountains to be for me going forward. And so started doing outreach to brands that more aligned, not just with kind of getting gear to go to do things or getting funding to do things, but ones that also have a similar ethos, whether it's an advocacy for sustainability or their their willingness to support local communities or just products that I, I like really believe in and I could get behind because I use them throughout my expeditions. And so it was the slow kind of process over 2020 leading into Everest in 2021, where I kind of really built up my first big collection of sponsors, which was wonderful. They were incredibly generous and provided a lot of opportunity for me to kind of actually give back even to the local Nepalese with like gear that they provided. And then with Everest, that just kind of continued the evolution. Once you've 
climbed Everest, it kind of becomes its own little entry point into that next level in the seven summits. And, but it's just one of those things where at the end of the day, it's, it's very much like politics. There's a lot of people doing incredible things out there and you have to be your own advocate from the early stage. And this is why I've always viewed like nothing is ever wasted, including the fact when I ran for office and knocked on like over a hundred thousand doors over the course of like four months and did all those phone calls, like being rejected and going through a process of genuinely asking and being unoffended when something goes wrong or when someone says no to you. You just have to have that. I think a lot of people think it personally these days. And for me, it just became part of a process of reaching out to as many people as I could and and finding relationships that really made sense. So let's get to Everest since you mentioned it. And, and you've summited it, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But you didn't quite make it the first time oh. you tried, did you? So so maybe tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like thinking a little further back than either of them, but very first of the seven summits I went after off in Congo down in Argentina, I was coming Which in. Which is the tallest mountain in South America. South America, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty, it's over 22,000 feet, but it's not viewed as highly technical. The altitude is the technicality. It can definitely have storms like any mountain, but Overall, when it comes to exposure, a lot of other issues, it's not a big deal. I came in, it was my first mountain. My team was a bit older than me at the time. I was in my, I was 36, I think. And I just came in with so much hubris and too much confidence in my physical abilities just to conquer a mountain. And that mountain quickly reminded me of the humility it takes when you start reaching for great heights. And so I was flown off day after day into a base camp after I trek in there with some kind of form of respiratory issue. And so fast forward to Everest about five years later, that was, again, like I said, one of the, the greatest summits I'd ever reached because it taught me so much about how to respect the mountain, but also how to listen to your body and set your ego aside when you ascend. And we were camp two. We were waiting. It was 2019. So it was the the big year there was one of the most deadly years it turned out because the weather had essentially closed down the mountain, which led to a large concentration of people waiting at camp too. Nims was doing his world record attempt that year and everyone was kind of like stuck at that camp waiting to go. And I felt great when we got up there. Um, but what I didn't know was that I had contracted bacterial pneumonia from somebody probably down during our drop back or during base at base camp. And so it was it was blossoming within my lung. And the morning before we were supposed to leave, I just woke up with this horrible hacking cough that dropped me to my knees. And I mean, you you don't get to catch your breath at over 21,000 feet, which is where we're at without oxygen living in camp too. And I just had this feeling that if I continue to go up, I might make the top, but I wouldn't make it home. And knowing what happened that year and sadly seeing people that did go up there and didn't make it back that were part of that year. I just, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made, but one of the hardest as well, because you've invested years of your life to get to that moment. You've invested all the money, the time you're already, you're literally two days away from the summit uh, on your summit push after climbing through the Kumbu ice bowls multiple times already, which is super dangerous. But it was, I felt the necessary moment to test my humility again and, and test had I learned the lessons that had been planted in me when I started this path. 
And I just, no one told me not to go. I, I simply said, I'm going to stay here. If I get better, I'll try to go. And I didn't get better. And over the days, the next two days, I, I listened to my team as they radioed back in. I waited at camp two and my health descended as they ascended. And I remember the night that they were going for their summit push, I just was going through my oxygen levels were dropping. I was in my tent. I was having like these weird pains my, because my lung essentially like couldn't get oxygen. It was when I x-rayed it later on, it was completely coated with pneumonia on the inside. And I just felt like I was burning. And I was like tearing off my clothes, like just kind of losing it a little bit um, in my tent. And we had this amazing guy who hung back with me and just was like there at the same time managing our team going out for me through say Mike with uh, Adventure Consultants. And I just remember listening to the summer callbacks of my friends reaching the summit and hearing like their celebration while I lay there dying essentially in, in there in my tent. At the same time though, I was so happy for them. It's just such a mix of emotions to be in those places. But when like eventually they got a helicopter in, helicoptered me off to camp two, which is hard to do. So we, we got weather, got me to a hospital, stayed in the hospital for a little bit. It was never a question of whether I was going to go back or whether I made the wrong call. Um, but it was just an opportunity for me to learn everything I could for the next time to do better and just find peace in the fact that the path is never straight. And sometimes to ascend, you have to descend again to find the right path. And for me, it, it brought so much more value to me when I returned the next year, because without that failure, I wouldn't have found all these wonderful sponsors and wonderful organizations to advocate for like Human Rights Watch. Those things came because I was given extra time and extra space to kind of build into it. So it was the next year that you finally did get the it, summit. It would have been, but that was COVID. So I was all packed and ready to go. So 2019 failed. I went to Antarctica, set those records, which kind of got me like geared up and feeling great. I had my bags by the door. We leave in like uh, mid-March, which is when COVID closed out everything. So the bags stayed by my door for, for about like two months. And then I kind of rebuilt everything up for 2021, which is when I went back up. But that time again was that failure that led to the finding and then the time was absolutely crucial to kind of building to everything that I'm really reaching for now. What, what's it like to stand on top of Mount Everest? What I is mean, that like? I'm a summit crier to begin with. So <laughs> like, I never understood growing up why you see professional athletes cry at the Super Bowl or cry like when they win a championship or like Olympians crying when they win something. But it's because there's a few things that I think for me that I feel one is I feel more connected than ever in my life because I realized that no summit you stayed on by yourself. Everyone who has supported you and been a part of your life and allowed you the space and, and the love to kind of get to that point, everything from the people that created the foundations of like where you came from to like the people that helped you on that very expedition itself, all have a hand in you standing where you are. Mm -hmm. And so you just feel so connected. And there's just something for me personally, and it goes back to like this evolution for me when it came to the mountains. I, a lot of people go because they're trying to conquer something um, in themselves. And so the mountain becomes the embodiment of that conquering. Like they, like myself, I ha had a heartbreak and, I, and a sense of loss and a sense of loneliness. And, and they want to like beat something to make them feel better. And I think at a certain point in time, if you're lucky, that evolves to realizing that 
this is a place where you can like commune and connect to something greater than yourself. Yeah. And, and for me, that's why Everest, like after this long meditation of years on the mountains was just such this euphoric moment. I kind of think of it as I tell people like why Everest There's other big mountains that are less crowded. I mean, they're not Everest, but why that one? And it's just, I, I look at it as almost equivalent of faith. And you, you, every time I go back to the mountain, it's like, it's like hearing another sermon and feeling another connection to something and to something greater than myself, which is what I think faith calls whatever faith you believe in. And so to go to Everest is like paying respect, is like going to Mecca or the Vatican or something like that. It's this place of high worship and it's a place of holiness for the people that live there. And so to stand there it, it, and on top there is just, it's just epicenter of emotion and connection that it all comes together. And I also proposed to my now wife who wasn't there on the summit, but who I wanted to also know like that she, even on top of the mountain was with me mm. and was the most important part. So that, that was like the first summit flag I pulled out and had my friend record me. And so, I mean, yeah, that, it, it's a pretty life-changing moment. If how how long do you stand there? Do you, do you, do you stay up there for several hours? Do you have um, to come off because you can't stay that long? Yeah. I mean, if the weather's good, you can be up there for maybe 20, 30 minutes or so. Okay. Um, I think sometimes longer, I mean, like we, you can be up at that altitude depending upon your oxygen like usage for a good amount of time. And we waited on our summit push because there was crowds like leading up and from the summit. And so we just like hunkered down because it was such a, like a relatively nice day at, in the death zone. We just kind of like tucked in like several of us and just like sat there back and just watched people and helped them as they pass and. Because the, the danger usually is in the mountain, but the people that are around you that are kind of running their wheels off, trying to get to the summit. And when they come down, they're just kind of flailing and falling and they, they've, they haven't used their energy maybe properly. And though we just wanted to be safe. And also when we got up there, there was just, just the seven of us really just hanging out. And it, the weather was like windy, but, uh, but we were able to take our mask off and take photos and but I was like to say, like, you, you can never live on the summit, right? You don't get to live in those moments forever. So go there, you take what you can and, and try to capture as much as you can and keep that with you the rest of your life. But that you're only halfway there. So do you, do you think you experience fear like, like the rest of us? I mean, people oh, die regularly climbing Mount Everest and you've climbed Mount Elbrus as well. And my yeah, understanding yeah, is that yeah. that is a, that's a, we had, we had Dan Egan on our show who is yeah. considered by many to be one of the, the pioneers, the founders of what we now know as extreme skiing. And boy, he tells a horrific story about when he uh, climbed Mount Elbrus. Yeah. Elbrus will swallow up, but bustle of the people. I remember when we climbed it, somebody had just disappeared. I think that a few days before. Because it's, it's one of those mountains and in general, I, I feel the more accessible a mountain is, the more dangerous it is because people let down their guard and they assume accessibility leads to easiness as well. And so, I mean, you look at places like Everest and it has deaths, but it has maybe a handful of deaths Two, I think I had two deaths last year, maybe four deaths the year before when I was there, but you look at places like Mont Blanc and they have about a hundred deaths a year on that mountain. Or even Aquacagua has about an equal, and it's less technical, but they have about an equal amount of deaths. And I, I think even probably Rainier has probably equal to Everest every year. Only because I think what people have the ability, and Elbrus is the same, you can actually get up 
amount to pretty easily. But what you don't recognize is that if the weather changes, if on a blooper day, those mountains are, yeah, fully doable. And, and most people can go up there and, and with minimal skills, follow the, follow the track and trail that has been pounded in there from previous people. But those kind of uh, opportunities can become critically dangerous the moment the conditions change and they can change so quickly. And that's what happens on Elvis. It's the path is very clear until a storm comes in. And then when that happens on either side of where you're going, if you could scale it back with a drone and look down at it, it is just these huge crevasses. And so if you go a little bit off on either side, you're gone. Never to be found. There was a couple of years before we got there, there was a tart wink team just disappeared and they never found them. And they just kind of walked off and went down a crevasse and there's just in the middle of the storm it's so easy to kind of like a whiteout it's so easy to lose your way and lose the, the trail or the track that you're on and lose where you're kind of going either you wanted and that's what happened a lot so so is it scary do you feel fear you, you go to a different place i think fear is healthy like i, I think it, it's fear is i would be afraid to find with somebody with no fear to be honest hmm. i think they're woven with fear is humility uh, and for me, that's important because I don't want somebody who is looking for the edge all the time because eventually they're going to find it. And I don't want to be there with them when they fall over. So I view like the sense is that you are constantly, like I said earlier, redefining that relationship with discomfort. So pushing against fear and pushing against what's upcoming. Nobody wants to take a ladder over, a riffy ladder over a gigantic crevasse in the Kungu Ice Falls. Like you don't want to do that. That's not a natural thing for anybody. But you'd realize that this is your path. And if you do it right, you'll be safe. But I'm also somebody where if the conditions are not right, I will not push myself into a bad conditions that I know are life-threatening. And I think some people will, will continue to do that. And it's, unfortunately, whether it's avalanche-like territory or it's heading off into a storm that they can hunker down because they have the supplies to it and try to wait out the storm because they just want to do it at a certain time frame. Those things, I think, are, are, are the mountain and nature testing you and giving you opportunities to see how you're going to react. And you can, I've sadly seen a lot of people get away with a lot of bad decision making, but eventually the house always wins in those situations. And eventually, like, when things go wrong, they usually are deadly. You, you, you have a Guinness World Record, correct? Yeah, yeah. So no, tell us about that. That's a fun one. I mean, so... Part of also being with COVID was I had a lot of time like we all did to kind of go down. So altitude records are are amazing because there's so many of them. However, I fully own the fact that I am more spirit to a turtle than I am a cheetah. And so speed records are generally not going to be usually my thing. And so there's a lot of people that a lot of the fastest to do this and the fastest to do that. For me, I wanted records to be as much about community building as possible. And so I actually got the highest altitude tea party, but it was great because we, <laughs> we did it at camp. We did it at camp two. So at 21,000 feet, we, we tried a base camp, but it was too low by a couple hundred feet. So we just really blew it out of water by doing it up. But the, it's very easy to like to set a record, but to get it kind of verified by Guinness World Records is a much more challenging thing I've come to realize. But it was, it was great because we had some wonderful partners like Mir, who creates a bunch of kind of bottleware and and different kind of like thermoses. So donated thousands of dollars worth of gear that we were then able to give to the local Sherpa and kind of Nepalese climbers and porters. So that's just stuff they can't get up there. 
And we did a first one with our entire kind of like all the people um, from the expedition, local athletes, porters, climbers, everybody at camp. I hosted it. I brought Girl Scout cookies in from New York because there's a, there's a troop out there that like helps with, I think, foster girls and the system. So especially order those like hundreds of dollars with that to bring that out and just carry them all up, carry them all the way across the room, the world up to base camp and up to camp two. And it was just one of those things where what I missed the most about COVID when it came to the mountains was not the mountains themselves, but was that family and that community, I think, and the connections to people there that I miss having. And so I wanted a chance for us to come together and Everest can get really serious for a lot of people. So a moment of levity and lightness, it was something that I wanted to bring and I made sure that everybody was a part of it. It's part of that record because I just want them all to know that it's, for me, like there's enough people doing things for themselves in this world. And, and things generally move a lot better when there's multiple people moving them um, and celebrating them. Will you break other records? Yeah, there's a lot coming up. I mean, I had a bunch in the pipeline right now. So there's, I mean, yeah, there, there's more coming up down, down the way right now. So, uh, But you don't want to talk about which ones? People are very poachy about records. I, I see, well, I see. But there are, so there, there's, a, there's one kind of, they're great. They're, they're ones that will remain to be kind of within high altitude of the mountains, but we'll also be incorporating other elements of adventure and kind of sports that I love and bringing them together. But yeah, there's definitely going to be more. I mean, like, like you said, so like Explorers Grand Slam is a huge one for me, like in the sense Yeah, tell like, us about that. Tell us about the Explorers Grand Slam. Yeah, so that, I mean, it's it's a classic kind of challenge and challenges are super special, really in the grand scheme. But for me, I love a good list of things to kind of go after and push. And and it's an opportunity to connect the places and to go to places that I potentially would never have had it not been for these these challenges. But it's uh, a unique collection of people from around the world. And there's variations to it as well. People have done a full traverse, but unfortunately with the North Pole right now, and the ice melt thing, the full traverse on the, the Arctic to the North Pole is almost impossible. And so the people that have done this full will probably be the last ones that would really be able to do that. So hmm. we're left with the opportunity to complete these last degrees, which are about a week and a half. They're not too challenging usually, but it's a, it's a collection of people internationally from, I think, just 73, 74 different places so far, or people have done it so far. I'll be like, 20th American and I'm a dual citizen. So 13th British person to ever do that. And I would like to complete the seven volcanic summits as well, but the last mountains in Iran. So that's not happening anytime soon. Nice. But yeah, I think there's like less than 10 people that have all climbed all seven and seven and, and the two poles. So things like that, that just kind of keep me out there. But a lot of what I'm hoping to do is find mountains while kind of more focusing on environmentalism and sustainability in these places. And try to kind of be a better advocate and, and elevate other issues that are connected to the places I go to versus just simply going for my own experience. So a, a couple of questions. So first, when you go to the North Pole, are you basically saying that it's not possible to do that anymore? I mean, is the North Pole now just, you know, part of the, is it just the ocean? There's so the no North, ice there? Yeah. So the North Pole is still there. So you can get up to the North Pole on the sea ice, but a pole traverse was usually started from, say, either Russia or uh, Canada, and you would kind of, like, begin essentially on, like, the continental, like, ground. Because once you're on the ice, it's all sea ice, which is, like, Antarctica, which you start kind of on the shelf, which is 
almost the reverse of Antarctic, of the Arctic, where is you start off on kind of more sea ice, then you end up on con- the continent. There's two miles of ice, but you're you're on land. The Arctic, the North Pole, you leave the land onto the sea ice for the duration of it. So you're dealing with a substantially more dynamic environment, which I'm really excited to see and experience, but one that is ever changing beneath you. And so you have pressure ridges and instead of crevasses, you have open water leads, which are just organic, like places where you have to navigate around those. You have polar bears that are definitely there and definitely curious. And so with climate change, though, the the ability to really start on these external kind of parts of this traverse have kind of become impossible. I think so the last attempts that were successful were like four or five years ago. And then on top of that, there's just been an issue of this is the first time in five years that people have been able to build what they call Barneo Ice Camp, which is this temporary camp they build on the ice in order to then launch scientific expeditions from there and kind of ski expeditions or dog expeditions. Season only lasts for about five or six weeks. And there's still ways to get to the North Pole, which you'd think like an icebreaker or something like that. But kind of the old manual way, which we're going to do by skiing and pulling uh, poles, that's just not a, wow. not a lot of other options right now. So. How, how long did it take you to ski the last degree to the South Pole? That was about, just still about, a, about almost two weeks. Yeah, I think around there. It was... Yeah, it was cold. It was it was tough. Like my 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 arms broke on my back, and so I gave myself a little bit of whiplash early on in the trip. So I just looked down at my skis. But it was Antarctica is such a beautiful place. But it's it's I think that's actually one of the harder expeditions that I've ever been on, simply because it's there's nothing there. There's there's no line of sight. So when you kind of get dropped off, truly feels like you're on this otherworldly planet where there's like no mountains in any direction there's nothing on the horizon it's just flat and so as the light changes it kind of puts you in this weird state of feeling like you're moving without moving and and it's a desert so it just it wits and it's cold extremely cold got frostbite on that trip so it's just it's just it's just one of those things where you just yeah i think like for me like it mentally is one of the most challenging things i've ever done it sounds like everything you do is challenging, uh, but I love I love this stuff. Uh, so, when you head up to the North Pole, my understanding is you're going to produce a documentary, and uh, my else I also understand that you're going to be raising money for Human Rights Watch. Is this something people can follow you in real time on, or do they have to sort of see it afterwards? So I'm trying to uh, work out on. I should have. I'll have GPS tracking information that I'll put up eventually, kind of on both my website and for Instagram, I'll, I'll put it as like one of my, my links in there. So you will kind of track as we go or as I, as I drop pins. But I work with Human Rights Watch for a few years now. And the goal is to build uh, the footage in this, go back and put together a small documentary that we can then go and do events and raise money for them using this as a portal because it's, it's such a rare experience to get up there and see these things. And I, and I would, Kind of have this belief that when you have like the ability to create connection, then you create empathy. And once you have the ability to have an empathetic connection, you can create impact. And for me, having these visuals is super important. And the hope as well, Human Rights Watch has been doing a lot of work at that nexus of kind of climate change with indigenous populations that are kind of living at the, the front lines of mm-hmm. the, the kind of like wars that we're fighting, like whether it's island nations or um, 
Sami in, in the north of the Laplands and the Nordic countries of people in, in the Amazon with, with altering kind of like rainforest environments and ecosystems. And so the goal is to create a film and maybe eventually something more from that that really isn't about me. But again, I don't want a hero tale. There's enough people highlighting themselves in, in different things. But I want my my entry to simply just be the key that opens up a greater amount of conversations about the ecosystems and communities and the the climate change impacts of both those things. So and you're involved in in other organizations as well. I read that you're on several boards at the University of Washington. You're a Peak Society member. You're a busy yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm on it's uh I I try to remain as much in my community as possible. And one of them I'm actually going to be able to do some some science scientific research for the some different researchers at University of Washington that are part of this Polar Institute. Mm-hmm. So I'll be able to kind of take measurements along the way, drop GPS locators, a bunch of observational science information that it's hard for them to get because you can only really get that by being up there or taking the icebreaker up. So hopefully I can bring back something valuable for them as well and kind of help them along just as many partners as I could have that I can be impactful for and use this as something more than just my time. That's what I want to do. Before we get to our extraordinary teaching segment, I wanted to ask you also about Dialed Outdoors that I read about. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's a worst right now. I've been prototyping a number of different products. It started years ago, just kind of with bantering intent inside like different tents after expeditions about things that were our pain points and maybe getting a point where I wanted to actually solve those. So prototyping a number of specifically mountaineering kind of cold weather items to start off with, with the hope of then evolving that into a brand and that will kind of expand into beyond just cold weather, but more hitting on kind of the overall experience of individuals that are under percent I would love to have. My comic partner is, is as a woman and she has perpetually dealt with kind of regressive design elements in her experience with the outdoors. And so I'm growing up with just a mom and a sister, finding a company that can dial it in for like the people that are underrepresented while also mm-hmm. opening up and becoming an advocate platform for people as well. Because I think at the end of the day, we... So many of us go out there and explore an experience without thinking about the inclusive nature of things or the very land that we're kind of going into and how we impact it. So it'll hopefully be something that kind of taps into the same veins that like Patagonian people that are redoing and um, trying to be a good steward as, as well as a company going forward. But it's a little passion project to hopefully launch later this year. Love it. Love it. Okay, we'll move into our extraordinary teaching segment. And I'm going to now ask you several rapid fire questions. And these are questions that I ask of all of my guests. Seeking the Extraordinary presents Extraordinary Teachings, a deeper look at the qualities that allow people to do extraordinary things. Andrew, what's been your most satisfying accomplishment in life so far? I would say the reaching the summit of Everest and everything that that kind of gave rise to. Of course. Any regrets in life? Lots of regrets. However, removing regrets, I would never do because I think they define me and have set me on my path where I'm at. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? I think redefine your relationship with discomfort and better define yourself in doing so. Love that. 
What's the best advice you've ever given or received? Or is it the same, same answer? I think the fact is that someone told me early on that nothing is ever wasted. And it's a very simple thing, but I think when you do, do that, it changes your perspectives and you're able to better positively approach even the hardships and the, the things that are going wrong. And you can always find opportunities for improvement then. What have been your best learning opportunities? I think findings and failures are always the best. Like I said earlier, the summits I haven't reached, the opportunities that didn't turn out have all, I, I think, led me to even greater experiences and opportunities in my life. Do you have any key role models or mentors that you'd like to mention? I honestly feel that every person uh, is an opportunity to be a teacher. Growing up with kind of a, a vacuum of certain traditional male figures in my life, I have always looked to my mother for empathy, who the teacher, for my sister and, and the people in my wife who have uh, been so full of love um, and support. And that kind of view of, of trying to connect and being uh, loving and empathetic in this life and in this world is really foundational to me. Love that. Do you have a personal mission? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be to touch this world in a way that leaves it better than when I came into it. And that, my friends, is the extraordinary Andrew Hughes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Michael. It's been an honor. Pleasure to talk with you. It's been great having you here. And I think I'm going to end the show with a quote from Andrew. And here's his quote. There exists an explorer within us all. Anyone who is willing to seek out the unknown and new knowledge, explore the depths of one's own life, and push the perceived limitations we place in ourselves is an explorer of self, taking part in the greatest expedition of all, the living of one's life. Great quote, Andrew. Thank so you. Much. Thank you. You can learn more about Andrew at andrewhughes.com. You can also join me in following Andrew on Twitter at Andrew I. Hughes and on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. Learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary. <laughs>